This is the Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the 1898 Spanish-American War, taught by Professor Joseph Gladhar of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Hi, everyone. I hope you had a great weekend. This should be a fun class. Today, we're going to talk about the Spanish-American War. But before we get into that, I just want to recap a couple of things that we did in our last class. Specifically, let's talk a little bit about the imperialism that developed in the late 19th century. Blake, you have, uh, you have anything you, you can contribute in this regard? Sure. So um, we had a very, uh, we were imperialistic and we thought that going to uh, we or one of our sorry, okay. <laughs> one of our reasons to go were um, I guess humanitarian. Um, we tried to help our little brown brothers down there to uh, try and make them more like American, our kind of society, because we felt that it was superior. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of an ethnocentrism. Yeah. Okay, Taylor, what do you have? You have anything to add to that? What's another uh, motivation? Yeah, the one that I thought was like stood up the, out the most to me was the economic aspect because we like the US had a lot of territorial interest in Cuba and a lot of Americans like owned sugar plantations and they wanted to protect their citizens and investments down there. But then uh -huh. in the US, there was also like overproduction, so they were also looking to advance to new markets, like Grace said last class. Good, good. Anyone else have a reason? Anyone want to volunteer something? Um, I can say something. Good, Tyler. Um, also, I'm so sorry. My smoke alarm is like beeping right now. I'm really sorry to everyone. It's okay. um, but sort of going off of what Blake said about imperialism, I feel like it was sort of the start of like blatant American white saviorism sort of, which we talk about a lot now in like missionary trips and like evangelical Christianity. Um, and I just thought that was like an interesting, interesting connection to what is we're like talking about now. Good, good. So what we've got are three principal motivations. One economic, we talked about how turbulent the American economy was in the latter half of the, of the eight, 19th century. And also, we talked about um, we talked about how they needed to find new markets because of overproduction, and so, so the economic motive was just that: find new markets. So, and, and then on top of that, you have a humanitarian component that both Blake and Tyler talked about, and then there's that, that ethnocentric component that Blake talked about. That is, we have a superior system, and what we really need to do is share our superior system with other people, and even if they're a little unwilling, we're going to force it upon them. And I talked, in the course of that lecture, we talked about the work of Alfred Bayer Mahan, and what was so important about Mahan's theories with regard to the future of American Navy and naval strategy was that it dovetailed beautifully with this sense of imperialism. Mahan wanted a powerful navy that could project force around the world, that would open new markets, but also be able to fight climactic battles and win victories. 
in wartime, we'd be able to control the sea lanes so we could get supplies and other countries couldn't get supplies. In addition to those elements, we would have to have colonies around the world. Those colonies would serve as coaling stations for our, for our vessels. And we would have to build a canal in the isthmus in Central America so that we could easily move warships from the Atlantic to the Pacific and back. So all, all these things worked in conjunction with sentiments that were kicking around in American society at the time. That is, we really, really needed to find new markets. We needed colonies for raw materials, colonies that would buy our finished products. And of course, having the military strength to project forces to protect those elements. So it all worked out really well with regard to imperialism. And we talked about the development. I'm sorry, someone have a question? Yeah, I was reading you know, um, the whole idea of like uh, the white man's burden. I think it was actually written about the Spanish War or the Philippines War. Was that was that more sort of about ethnocentrism or more about the sort of humanitarian aspect? It was a kind of a mixture of both. Well, I think it's a combination of ethnocentrism, racism, and humanitarianism. Part of it is we want to improve the lot of the little uh, of our, as they expressed it in that time period a little brown brother. But it's also a, a form of exploitation because we expected them to buy, produce the raw materials and then buy the finished products. And then of course there's a, but, but in the end it would improve their quality of life. So there's all three components, ethnocentrism, humanitarianism, and racism. Racism is a powerful force. And, and I guess you could say that ethnocentrism is racist. Professor, I have a question as well. Sure. Uh, so was the U.S. new to this scene? Because I know this had been happening with Europe for a long time, especially with Africa and all of their colonies over there. So was this already an idea that had kind of spread from Europe to the Americas? Yeah, we were a little slow to get into the imperialist game. But on the other hand, we were acting in a kind of imperialist fashion within North America, expanding from one ocean to the other suppressing the Indians, gobbling up their land for economic exploitation. So we we're already doing it. Our focus was mainly in North America, though. Thank you. Sure. Anyone else have a question about this? And right, right when we broke from class last time, we talked about the USS Maine. We talked about how there had been trouble in Cuba for a long time. The American people were increasingly upset and the motivations as both Taylor and Blake had talked about with regard to Cuba, a lot of Americans felt sympathy for the Cubans that they should have their independence. The United States had long had interest in acquiring Cuba because possessing Cuba is a great means of defense against the Gulf Coast states in case of invasion. And of course, lots of Americans had invested heavily as Taylor said, in those in Cuba, owning sugar plantations and the like. So the United States sent the USS Maine to show the flag and make sure that everyone knew that the United States was there to protect American property. And then on the 15th of February, 1898, the Maine exploded. Kate, who, what, what, tell us about what yellow journalism is. 
um, yeah, like, journalism was um, the press would, like, emphasize and, like, kind of not fully tell the truth about an event that happened. And so they um, created, like, emphasize accounts of what the Spanish was, like, doing to the Cubans. Yeah. They, it's, it's a means of selling newspapers by sensationalization. And so the yellow journalists immediately claimed that Spain had been the ones who had blown up the ship. But in fact, subsequent investigations indicated that the explosion took place on the ship. So it wasn't an act of terrorism, as the newspapers claimed. Nonetheless, 260 American sailors were killed, and the American people were, were driven into a frenzy because of the yellow journalists. The pressure was enormous on our president, who many of you know, William McKinley. There's McKinley for you. McKinley, as I said before, was a Civil War hero. Had he fought in today's military, he probably would have been a recipient of the Medal of Honor because he would go out under fire and rescue wounded comrades and carry them back to American lines. And he did this repeatedly. What an extraordinary soldier. He knew what war was all about, and he didn't want to get the United States involved. But the pressure was enormous, and ultimately, he succumbed to that pressure. The United States sent Cuba, I mean, sent Spain an ultimatum demanding that they negotiate a peace with, with the Cuban insurrectionists. But the truth of the matter is that before Cuba could respond, the pressure was so great that the United States declared war on Spain. So we've got the Spanish-American War. In the Declaration of War, we attached what was called the Teller Amendment, which stated that the United States had no designs on acquiring Cuba. We're trying to make our fight against Spain look altruistic, that is, we're fighting on behalf of our Cuban fellow Americans, and that was our sole intention when, in fact, we had much different motivations. One of the most interesting aspects of this whole event occurred just before the, the, uh, the U.S. declared war. The Secretary of the Navy, a guy named Long, left the office one day, and that left his assistant secretary, Teddy Roosevelt, in charge. And Roosevelt fired off a telegram to the American Pacific Fleet Commander, George Dewey. He warned Dewey that it looked like there was going to be war ahead, so he should prepare his vessels for an attack on Manila, stock up on foods and other supplies, and be ready to move at a moment's notice. So when war was declared, Dewey was ordered to go after the Spanish fleet in Manila Harbor in the Philippines, and he did just that. So the very first fight actually took place on May 1st in the Philippines. In that instance, Dewey had his six U.S. vessels take elliptical passes on the Spanish fleet and firing. The, fight, the shooting began about 5.40 a.m. After the Americans had fired 15 rounds from each gun, Dewey received information that he thought they said we only had 15 rounds left when in fact they said he had only fired 15 rounds. But at that point, Dewey decided to pull back. Also, the troops hadn't eaten anything. And when they, the ships pulled back and the smoke cleared, the Spanish fleet was just in a disastrous shape. 
Spanish had 381 killed and wounded in the fight. The Americans had eight wounded, one death, and the death was from heat prostate, prostration. So as a result of that, it was a, it was a resounding victory. The Spanish fleet surrendered, and Dewey won the very first victory for the Americans at the Battle of Manila Bay. Now, one of the big issues the United States had with this victory was mobilizing for war. And we had a small regular army, about 28,000 people. Our Secretary of War was Russell Alger. He was a Civil War hero and, and a congressman, but he was really incompetent as Secretary of War. So what happened ultimately, was, and the commanding general was a guy named Nelson A. Miles, who was an excellent soldier and a not very nice human being. In fact, he married Sherman's niece and William Tecumseh Sherman hated Miles. He thought he was a jerk. So McKinley kind of isolated Miles and he had the adjutant general come to the White House and the two of them ran the war and they excluded Alger as well. At first they were gonna mobilize, increasing the size of the regular army dramatically, but the National Guard began to squawk. They didn't like it. Jake, why would the National Guard be able to change policy like that? Do you have any idea? A lot of the... Uh... I guess National Guard would have been holdovers from the militia, I'd assume. Yeah. So a lot of these people would probably have some pretty influential local and lower level government positions and be able to really get upset about something like this. That's right. That's exactly right. Keep in mind, the National Guard from, comes from the local community. These people live in the community and they vote. And as a result of that, the government's very careful about responding to National Guard needs and has been ever since. And in this instance, McKinley didn't want that kind of pressure. And as a result, he allowed the National Guard to enlist en masse. If an entire regiment voted to go, they would, could go and all they would have is one regular army officer assigned to them. We also raised about 200,000 volunteers to fight the war. But, and we raised, expanded the size of the regular army pretty dramatically. Oh, the, as far as units were concerned, the most famous, of course, was the first volunteer cavalry, Teddy Roosevelt. Rose, Roosevelt was the brainchild of this. He had no military experience, so he got his friend Leonard Wood to serve as the regimental commander. Leonard Wood was an army doctor who had earned a Medal of Honor fighting Geronimo, and Wood stepped over and took on the position. There's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt with some of the Rough Riders. It's a really unusual mixture of individuals. He's got, <coughs> he's got for his volunteer unit, some regular army officers. He's got some cowboys. He's got some bowery bums. Can you imagine the campfires in those situations? He's got some really tough folks in there. It's a, a strange, strange mixture of people. Another organization was called the Astor Battery. John Jacob Astor was so rich that he paid for a, an artillery battery. Again, he got West Point graduates to be the officers. He recruited some Harvard grads and he got Bowery bums to serve for them too. So you have very strange mixtures of commands here in the Spanish-American War. When we 
began mobilizing manpower, we had absolutely no mobilization plans whatsoever. No manpower mobilization plans, no industrial mobilization plans. So the army was completely unprepared for this situation. The quartermaster department only had 57 officers and had enough supplies for 40,000 men for three months. That's not gonna do when you bring in 200,000 volunteers and expanding the size of the regular army to 64,000. As one bureaucrat said, we had a great system going until the war came along and messed it up. And that, there's a lot of truth to that. On top of that, of course, the War Department was flooded, absolutely flooded with applications for commissions and favors. Huge numbers of people wanted to get into the war, and so they were working re all hours of the day and night, all around the clock, to try and staff and equip these units. They did do something smart. They began taking over selected areas, oftentimes old Civil War battlefields, because they were cleared areas, and they used those for training facilities. One of the big problems they had was the regular army had really good weapons, Krag, Jurgensen, breech loaders with five cartridge magazines. In other words, you had a, ma a magazine you clipped on, you had five bullets in it, and these fired smokeless gunpowder. But most of the National Guard, and then ultimately most of the volunteers, had to use old Springfield models, which emitted black, white, uh, you know, black powder and emitted white clouds of smoke when they were fired, which gave away your position. The only volunteer unit that got Crags was, you guessed it, the first U.S. volunteer cavalry, the Rough Riders. Teddy Roosevelt had that political clout that he could get things that he wanted and thought he needed. A lot of these <laughs> units were still loaded with Civil War veterans, and a lot of them had very old folks. So, for example, there was a guy named Bigelow who graduated from West Point in 1877. Bigelow had his first assignment with this regiment, got all sorts of other assignments. In 1898, he got reassigned to his old regiment, and the same first sergeant was in his company. So he was assigned as a company commander. After 21 years, those of you who are going into the military, this doesn't sound all that appealing, does it? 21 years and you're still a captain. And he, so 21 years and he got the same first sergeant he, as he had when he got out of West Point. So not a lot of turnover, especially the older guys, these more senior officers were Civil War commanders. The, the overall commander for the operation is a guy named William Shafter. And there you can see Shafter on the right. See, he's brutalizing a horse. Shafter had received the Medal of Honor in the Civil War, and he was not a West Point graduate, and he was widely regarded as being very unprofessional as, as far as his conduct. And if you look at the size of him, you can see he's ill-suited for deployment in Cuba. He weighs over 300 pounds, and in that Cuban summer heat, he's just not going to make it. It's not going to get the job done. And so he's very much disorganized. You've got a little clash in the regular army in those days between those who came into the army in the aftermath of the Civil War who didn't have West Point education and those who did. 
Now, some of those who didn't became very good professional soldiers, but many of them did not. And so in Shafter's case, he, he was looked down upon, people were pretty critical of him. Shafter had just been promoted to Brigadier General and he got assigned the Fifth Corps, which was organizing for an invasion of Cuba in Tampa, Florida. And so that's where we began accumulating manpower. As I said before, the army was undersupplied. People were rushing into, into Tampa. Soldiers were coming in. Civilians were coming in to see the invasion. Yellow journalists were pestering Shafter at all hours of the day and night. Of course, it's really hot in Cuba. He wasn't dealing with the heat very well. It was a huge problem. Anyway, to make matters worse, the U.S. Army did not own transport ships, so we had to try and lease them from private sources, civilians, and leasing them from civilians was a big deal. It was a big problem because, of course, they didn't want to risk their boats being sunk taking them into a war zone. To make matters worse, no one had really thought out the supply and logistical issues. And so trains were, there was only a single railroad track that ran into Tampa. And trains were literally backed up from Tampa, Florida to North Carolina with supplies and other goods trying to get into Tampa. To make matters worse, no one put a bill of lading on the cars, on the railroad cars. Anyone know what a bill of lading is? Well, then I'll just have to tell you. A bill of lading is a statement about exactly what is in each railroad car. That's kind of important stuff. So without bills of lading, you have to get in and start rummaging through crate after crate after crate till you figure out what you've got. You can imagine what a mess that was. To make matters worse, people like Teddy Roosevelt didn't want to get left behind. He was, his idea of a nightmare was not participating in the war. So Teddy stole a train. He literally stole a train. And then he literally stole two transport ships and put his men on him. And when somebody came, an officer came and said, excuse me, you're on our transport ships, Teddy gave them the big white tooth grin. Uh-uh, you're not getting on this one. And his men, of course, had armed weapons. They weren't giving up the transports. But Teddy didn't realize that he was actually designated to go to, to Tampa, but he just wasn't gonna give up those transports. And so that's how Teddy Roosevelt ended up getting there. They finally got underway in June, mid-June, 1898, eight-day trip from, from Tampa to the Santiago area. If you look at the map there, Santiago's in the southeastern portion of, of uh, Cuba. And it's a, it was, a, as I said, an eight-day trip which is fairly long, troops went long periods of time without adequate food. Essentially, the best they, they got was some cold beef and some hard biscuit and maybe a cup of coffee once a day, something like that. The rations were woefully inadequate. The men were crammed on these transports. They had navy blue wool uniforms and they're going into Cuba. That doesn't sound all that pleasant to me. So it's a really bad situation. And of course, there's 
The 32 transports that they took were scattered over an enormous number of miles. Had one Spanish warship broken free, it would have sunk all those transports. But fortunately, that didn't happen. They landed at a place called Daiquiri, a beach. It's on the right-hand side of the upper map of your, of your, uh, of your PowerPoint. And it was a fiasco. Private ship owners wouldn't let their vessels get close. They had no lighters, so they couldn't get close to shore. The Navy had to loan a bunch of small rowboats to enable them to row. And so they could take troops and then ultimately supplies, but they didn't take time to manage the supplies. So they just created a giant mountain of a supply depot on the beach. And of course, everything was just completely chaotic. Two soldiers lost their lives in the landing. Think back to the Mexican War when Winfield Scott actually assisted in the de designing and construction of 67 landing craft and pulled off an amphibious landing in Mexico against hostile forces and suffered zero casualties. Shows you what a good soldier Winfield Scott was. It also shows you how fouled up this was because the Cuban insurrectionists had sealed off the beach areas so no one was firing at America really a bad, bad scenario. Of course, they couldn't deal with the horses, so some genius came up with a great idea. Let's have put a bugler on the shore, and we'll push the horses into the water, and we'll have the bugle play the bugle, and the horses will swim to the sound of the bugle. So they did that. They had the bugler start playing. They pushed the horses into the ocean, and in fact, the horses started swimming back to Miami. So the horses, virtually all the horses died, drowned in the attempted landing. The whole thing was just a complete fiasco. Of course, Shafter was too ill to deal with anything when they landed. And so he remained at sea. It was a little cooler there. You got the cooler breeze, which left a guy named Joe Wheeler in charge. Now, Joe, Joe Wheeler, as you can see, there he is with, with uh, McKinley. Joe Wheeler was a West Point graduate, and he was the chief of cavalry for the Confederate Army of Tennessee. After the war, he eventually got reinstated, not into the Army, but got, his, got authorization, ran for Congress, and was a very prominent congressman from Alabama. And of course, when the war broke out, in an effort to unify the South behind the cause, Wheeler got appointed Major General of Volunteers. And so with Wheeler on land, he was the ranking officer. Now they had a, a regular command ahead of Wheeler, but Wheeler led his troops around the infantry and launched an attack against the Spanish at a place called Las Guasimas. And there he got himself shot up pretty badly. His command was getting roughed up horribly. Finally, the rough riders began advancing. The commander of the infantry thought he was in the lead of the Union US forces. In fact, he was nothing of the sort. And then he, they began attacking as well. And eventually they routed the Spanish forces. When the Spanish began to fall back, Wheeler called out, come on boys, we've got those damn Yankees on the run. Which is a scary thought when somebody says something like that in 1898. I kind of forgot what side he was fighting on. So Wheeler 
fought the very first battle at Las Guasimas. He got roughed up a little bit, but ultimately the Americans occupied the position. Now, according to a number of sources, the U.S. had problems with this, and they had problems with it because Shafter wanted to advance towards Santiago in a closer to the coastline so he could receive naval support and easily draw on supplies. But in fact, by moving into Las Guasimas, they pushed them much farther inland. And so they just had to pursue from that direction, which became a big issue, at least in the minds of, of lots of Americans and especially Shafter. So Shafter revised his plans and he wanted to try and seize the high ground outside of Santiago. And here's a map of that. The Americans are coming from the jungles and pushing out in this direction here. The problem is the Spanish have a fort over here, El Cane, and here's Kettle Hill. In case you are wondering, Teddy Roosevelt did not assault San Juan Hill, he assaulted Kettle Hill. And then here's the San Juan Ridge, all of this that the Americans needed to secure, the high ground outside of Santiago. And things didn't quite work out as the Americans had hoped. Shafter was, by this point, had landed and he planned the campaign, but he was so sick that he couldn't come to the front. In fact, he was so big and so heavy that he couldn't sit, lie on an army cot. They, they collapsed under his weight. So they ripped a giant door off and rested Shafter on the door. And when he, they moved him, they had to carry the door around, which was like, <laughs> quite a few guys to do that. Meanwhile, Wheeler, by this point, has got a bad case of dysentery, so he's not up to any action as well. And so he's largely in the rear, but during the fighting here, he eventually moves to the, to the forward position, but he's in no position to control the fight. The plan was essentially this. The United States, under a guy named Lawton, who was a, a regular army officer with a bad drinking habit, but a, but a pretty good soldier nonetheless, was going to attack Elkanay and seize that. And they anticipated they could do that in two or three hours. Meanwhile, other troops would advance in this direction and with, with Lawton coming in on the flank and these troops attacking in the front, the Americans would be able to seize control of the high ground here. Well, that was the concept, but of course the concept didn't quite work out as people had hoped. First of all, Elkanay was really well fortified with barbed wire, breastworks, really tough situation. And so Lawton attacked and that two or two to three hour campaign against El Cane ended up being a fight that lasted all the way to 5 p.m. And the Americans suffered pretty heavy losses in fighting for El Cane. In fact, the Americans had 81 killed, 360 wounded in just trying to go after El Cane, which had about 500 defenders. So the Spanish really fought well there and resisted. The Americans exhibited tremendous courage in the fight, but that didn't make much of a difference. So, meanwhile, 
the troops that were advancing through the jungle in this direction ran into a big problem. Some genius thought it would be a great idea to have an observation balloon up there. But they were fearful that the observation balloon would drift over Spanish position, so they had a long rope dangling from the container of it and a soldier at the bottom holding onto the rope, which told the Spanish where the American troops were coming in through the jungle. The Spanish, being no fools, began pouring fire on the Americans below the balloon. And so the troops, as they advanced along the front through the jungle, were getting really shot up. Pretty bad situation. One guy who was in this unit, a National Guard unit in the lead, described it as, as mud mixed with blood. And it was a pretty, pretty bad situation. And by the time the soldiers from that National Guard unit emerged from the jungle, they just wouldn't advance any farther. They were, they were worn out by the pummeling they had taken. Eventually, some imbecile shot down the balloon and that salvaged the Americans, the other Americans who were advancing. But when they came out of the jungles, they could see the, the uh, front troops were laying down, regulars were right behind them, as were the Rough Riders, and it became clear to them that they only had one option, and that was to to launch a frontal assault. And here they were really fortunate. A couple of factors came into play. One was that the Spanish, even though they were armed with weapons that had, that fired smokeless gunpowder, the Americans mostly emitted clouds of smoke with their weapons. That was a real problem. It's especially embarrassing because an American invented smokeless gunpowder, which shows you how slow the army was in embracing new technologies. <laughs> the sec second advantage, the advantage that we had, though, was that the Spanish had dug in on the actual crest, not the military crest. The difference is pretty significant. The actual crest is the top of a hill. The military crest is a position on the hill which eliminates any dead zones so that those who are advancing up the hill can get be un under fire at all times. In this instance, the Spanish were on the actual crest, and so when the Americans crossed over to get close to the base of the hill, they suddenly found that they were protected. And there they could organize, and then they launched an attack up the hill. Interestingly, Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders were among the first people at the top of the hill. Also at the t arriving at the top of the hill were some black regu regular army soldiers. Teddy later claimed that he deserved the Medal of Honor for his exploits. And I was kind of fortunate to be chosen to serve on an army committee to investigate Teddy's exploits. And Teddy did deserve a Medal of Honor. He was incredibly heroic and bold and was critical in, in seizing Kettle Hill. The problem was that Teddy, Teddy just shamelessly promoted himself and that turned people off. And so no one was willing to support his his application that he receive a Medal of Honor. So about, I can't remember, maybe about eight, seven or eight years ago, Teddy Roosevelt received posthumously the Medal of Honor for his attack on Kettle Hill. But as I said, Teddy arrived at the top of Kettle Hill about the same time as some black regulars got there. So it's unclear who was there first. Americans seized Kettle Hill, then they attacked the, the high ground over here, 
once again, exhibiting extraordinary courage and boldness, and we were able to drive the Spanish back. Spanish then fell back into Santiago. So we secured the high ground there. Meanwhile, an interesting episode ha happened in the harbor of, of uh, Santiago. The Spanish fleet, which had been terrorizing, at least in the minds of Americans, the people who lived on the East Coast, of course, the Spanish fleet never materialized on the East Coast, but people lived in abject terror that it would show up out, uh, outside their, their you know, waterfront home and begin shelling it. Eventually got blocked in Santiago Harbor. And so the Spanish fleet decided to try and make a run for it. At the time, the admiral in command was on land talking to Shafter in a meeting with Shafter. And the second in command then fought the battle. And it was a really interesting battle. The Americans fired 8,060 rounds against the Spanish fleet and had 123 hits and sunk, sunk or soaked or incapacitated every one of the Spanish ships. The second in command thought he deserved victory, credit for the victory. Samson ignored the second in command and took full credit for the victory, and they ended up being, being in a big squabble. But the truth of the matter is the Spanish suffered 470 killed and wounded. The Americans had one sailor killed, one sailor wounded. But we sunk all the ships. This is going to become a big point of issue within the Navy at a later date, because a guy named William Sims, and if you take the second half of this course, you'll learn about William Sims. Sims developed a means of firing more accurately. But the Navy was resistant. After all, how much better can you do than sink every Spanish ship in Santiago Harbor? Do we really need to fire more accurately? You know, their argument was, so what if it only costs, we'd only need to use 4,000 shells as opposed to 8,000. We still sunk every ship. You can't do any better than that. And so that became an obstacle for Navy reform in that time period. Anyone have any questions thus far about what we what I've been talking about? Yeah, Professor, I have a really quick question. Um, why was there such a lack of just like logistical planning and foresight even after the army had like established the infantry and cavalry schools? Like, uh, I feel I like it, that would. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's that's an excellent question. You have these people who are trained in combined arms. But the problem is you have no organization within the War Department that's whose job it is to plan for war. So we have no mobilization plans. We didn't even have a map. The War Department did not have a map of Cuba. Can you believe that? Didn't even have a map of Cuba. That's how unprepared they were. And of course, so they're doing everything on the fly. And Shafter is not a good administrator. He's not a very professional soldier. And then he's incapacitated by heat to make matters worse. And as a result, we've just got a disastrous logistical situation here. This is a classic example of how valuable good logistics are. If you take the second half of the course, you'll study about the first Gulf War, and there you see how incredibly valuable logistics are as well. And then, of course, the World War II in the Pacific Theater is unbelievable. 
when you're we're projecting forces such tremendous distances from the United States. But this is a valuable lesson. It's going to have significant impact on the post-war period, as we will talk about in a couple of lectures from now. Anyone else? I had a quick question, Professor. Sure. Who is it? Caroline. Hey. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Um, I just wanted to go back to Joe Wheeler for a second. So, sure. What kind of presidents did like ex-Confederate soldiers have at this point? Because I know, like you said, we got the Yankees on the run. Like, how would something of that gone over? Like, were, were people questioning that, or did they even hear him say that? I think, uh, with regard to to Wheeler, uh, what they're trying to do is bring the Confederacy the former Confederacy back into the government in a very effective way. And they're very slow to do that because, and, you know, you don't want to bring back guys who were traitors to the United States before to get to the United States military. But slow, slowly but surely, they began to do that. Not so much bring in guys who fought for the Confederacy in the, into the regular army, but they be, opened up, of course, West Point and the Naval Academy to Southerners, and so slowly but surely, you began to build up large numbers. And then when you had a situation like this, where you had to mobilize large numbers of people, they thought it would be smart to choose selected individuals who had professional military experience, maybe even professional military training, and put them in positions of authority, like Wheeler, a former Congress, a congressman, or, or another guy, James Harrison Wilson, who was in this extraordinary cavalry officer in the Civil War, West Point graduate. I think Wilson graduated second in his West Point class, and he was very close with Grant. Then he left the Army, and they brought him back as well. So they had a number of individuals in that situation. All right, thank you. Sure. You're working. welcome, Caroline. Anyone else? Good, good. All right. So here we are. We occupy the high ground outside of Santiago. The Spanish fleet is destroyed. The Spanish have large numbers of troops in, in Cuba. In fact, in the province of Santiago province, they've got 36,000 troops. And in all of Cuba, they've got almost 200,000 troops. But remember, the, the uh, Spanish are fighting Cubans the Cuban insurrectionists, who are really tough customers. They're badly equipped, badly clothed, badly financed, but really tough customers. So the Spanish, of course, their morale is really low. They're actually running low on supplies, and they're not in good shape. But of course, the Americans don't know that. And so we began to, we began to suffer some problems. Yellow fever showed its head, ugly head. Soldiers came down with malaria, yellow fever, a lot of diarrhea, and, the, and they weren't practicing effective sanitary precautions. They weren't being supplied properly. They weren't getting a balanced diet. And as a result of that, the situation began to get dire. And Shafter didn't know what to do. He actually floated the idea of retreating back to the beach, reorganizing everyone, and then launching a new campaign. And his subordinate said, you can't do that. The president will fire you in a heartbeat. 
That's just a terrible idea. So what they ended up doing was a staff officer said, why don't you offer them an opportunity to surrender? And so Schefter thought it was ridiculous, but he did. So the Americans sent a messenger in, do you want to, you know, we think you should surrender. And this, amazingly, the Spanish did. Of course, the Americans didn't know how bad the situation was for the Spanish. And to make matters worse, it took, the Spanish were really, really hurting. And it took a while for negotiations to come to that point. But the amazing thing was the Spanish not only surrendered in Santiago, they surrendered all the Spanish troops in Cuba. The big stumbling block was who's going to transport the Spanish soldiers back to Spain? The U.S. didn't want to do it. The Spanish didn't have any means of doing so. And the Spanish were particularly uneasy about the Cuban fighters, that they would attack the Spanish soldiers and so on, especially after they were disarmed. So the United States had to really protect Spanish soldiers in this, in this scenario. Pretty bad scene. But the Spanish did. They surrendered July 17th, 18. 98. Now, matters weren't over. With the yellow fever outbreak, a number of senior officers signed a letter called a round robin. It, it, it was sent to the War Department and the President, and the intention was to warn him that or warn them that if they didn't get these troops out of here, they would die of yellow fever and malaria. It's a pretty scary thing to get. In fact, it's a little bit reminiscent of the Teddy Roosevelt aircraft carrier and the situation that we've just been undergoing out in Guam. So in this case, Teddy Roosevelt, so it seems, leaked the round robin to the press. And of course, the press played it up in a sensational way. William McKinley read the round robin in a Washington, D.C. newspaper before he actually got the round robin. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out presidents don't like to learn important news like that in that fashion. And so the U.S. government was in really in a bad situation and they didn't know what to do. They had to they had to take steps to deal with the problem. They ended up selecting Montauk, New York. I don't know, has anyone ever been to Montauk, New York? I have. You have? Mm -hmm. What was it like? Uh, it was pretty uh, nice, because I went to the lighthouse there when I went there. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's on the extreme tip of Long Island in New York. But it's so far out there that it's really isolated, and of course, they didn't really know what the cause of yellow fever was. They didn't know what the cause of malaria was. They still thought it was, it was uh, miasmas emanating from the ground, and they didn't know how contagious these things were. So they decided to send them out to, to Montauk, Long Island. The problem was it was so far out there, there, was, there were no facilities for them. So literally, they dumped these sick soldiers on the beaches the soldiers just laid there. There were no tents, there were no cots for them, they didn't have sufficient medical supplies, and of course there's one railroad that runs out there and it's, 
it's not only got supplies, but it's got all sorts of family members of soldiers on there, because if the government wasn't going to take care of their soldiers, then by God, they were going to go out there and look after their own loved ones. It became a huge, huge scandal for the United States. To replace these guys, the government did another unbelievably <laughs> foolish thing. It, rained, it, it raised units, and they called these units the immunes. These were individuals that they thought were immune from tropical diseases. Take a wild guess who made up the immunes. Anyone? Not white people. Not white people. Tyler, you have got that. That's part of it. So they raised black units, black volunteer units, because they thought that they were immune to tropical diseases. They raised white units from selected areas of the country, like Louisiana, where you would have been exposed to tropical diseases. They figured, you know, if you're 20, 22 years of age and you're still alive and you've been exposed to tropical diseases, you're probably immune to them now. And so they sent these people in to do the occupation duty. It was a pretty bad scene. I have a question. Yes. Um, if if the Spanish had already surrendered, um, why did they need like all those men to be replaced? I mean, I know they would have needed a few to to occupy Cuba, but did they really need the exact same size of army? As well, they, I, they didn't send the exact same size. I'm trying to remember how many regiments. I think they sent eight immune regiments in, okay. and slowly began demobilizing. But they they had a lot of work to do. Cuba was a mess. They were fearful of widespread starvation as a result of the, of the war against the Spanish. They were also really worried about the Spanish soldiers being slaughtered by the Cubans. So we needed a military presence there for occupation. Plus, you couldn't just turn over Cuba to the Cubans. They were, had, were disorganized. They had no experience leading their country. Many of the more elite Cubans sided with the Spanish because they were already well off. They had a lot to lose. So it was a complicated situation and would take time to make adjustments. The Americans, of course, were a little slower on allowing those. But they would need to, to take place. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. To put things in context, 771 Americans died from disease. The U.S. suffered 1,500 casualties, killed and wounded in combat. But the death rate was much greater from disease, and much of this was unnecessary. And here's the evidence of it. The United States had two separate commands that got involved in Cuba. One was a Marine battalion that went into Guantanamo. Now, the Marines were dressed for the climate. They had Tropical uniforms, not wool, cotton. They practiced rigorously sanitation. And as a result, they never had a sick rate that exceeded two and a half percent, and they lost zero men due to disease. That's pretty impressive. I mean, if you look at our class, we probably got two percent of the class. We probably got somebody in the class who's sick right now, which means that we've got three percent sick rate. So it's a pretty extraordinary achievement what the Marines did. Furthermore, we sent Nelson Miles on an expedition into Puerto Rico. Miles, as I said before, was a very skilled officer and very difficult to deal with. Um, 
you remember how insufferable Winfield Scott was. Miles wasn't quite in that league, but he was pretty close. Very difficult person to deal with, but very, very skilled, much like Winfield Scott. Miles organized his Puerto Rican expedition skillfully. The U.S. sent 17 regiments with, with him, half of them regular army, half of them volunteers. They landed in Puerto Rico on the 25th of July. The Puerto Rican public generally received the Americans very well, but Miles organized everything well. He was really effective in, in his execution. He dressed them appropriately. He made sure that they, that they abided by proper sanitary procedures. And as a result, Miles too had virtually no sick rate within his, within his command. So it shows you that it could have been done had we had a more competent commander. So we've got Guantanamo, we've got Puerto Rico. Guantanamo, of course, is on Cuba. Anyone have any questions about any of these things before we shift gears and go out to the Pacific? No one? All right, let's talk about the Pacific. As you probably recall, and that's how you spell the Philippines people, oftentimes misspelled, one L, two Ps. Dewey sunk the Spanish fleet. There he waited for reinforcements. Both the British and the Germans began trying to make inroads there because the Spanish were in bad shape. And the U.S. kind of resisted that. They didn't want any part of it. The U.S. eventually sent troops out there to, to the Philippines. And it was one of those interesting situations. A, a brigade, some 2,500 men, under, arrived at Guam. Guam was at the time part of Spain. And the governor of Guam apologized to the Americans for not firing the appropriate salute to the American flag, but he said they had a real shortage of gunpowder. And the Americans then said, well, we're at war with Spain, and I think you probably ought to surrender. So Guam surrendered to the United States. That's how the United States got Guam, in case you were wondering. Pretty strange episode. Those troops then pushed on to the Philippines. They were followed. Subsequently, another 5,000 arrived, and then another 2,500 arrived under Arthur MacArthur. Arthur MacArthur, of course, is Douglas MacArthur's father. He was in the Civil War, received the Medal of Honor, decided to stay in the Army. He was one of those who was not a West Point graduate, but was a truly professional soldier, really, really a fine soldier. So the Americans began building up troops in the Philippines. Meanwhile, the Philippines had been involved in a number of insurrections, the most recent a couple of years earlier in 1896. And to resolve it, the Filipinos weren't going to win. So the Spanish, in effect, bought off the Filipino leadership. They offered them a large amount of money and other concessions if they would move into exile. The leader of this group, was a guy named Emilio Aguinaldo. And Aguinaldo is an amazing figure. He's around forever. To give you an idea 
Aguinaldo's involved in this. My graduate advisor interviewed Aguinaldo in 1960. He's still around in 1960. That's a long life to be at a, in a central position. So Aguinaldo took the money, but he didn't spend it and he didn't divide it. He stowed it away in a bank and was waiting to buy weapons as soon as he had a chance to go back into the Philippines to win their independence. And so Aguinaldo began communicating with the American ambassador in, the Sing in Singapore, and he thought they struck a deal. Aguinaldo claimed the American ambassador said that if the Filipinos would aid the Americans against the Spanish, that we would give the Philippines their independence. The ambassador denied that. We don't know who was telling the truth, but the bottom line is that when the Americans began moving in, the Filipinos had already resurrected their insurrection and had a loose cordon around the city of Manila with the Spanish garrison inside in the, in, in the city. The Americans then occupied a substantial portion of the land, line and something similar to Cuba occurred. The Spanish began communicating with the Americans. They began saying, hey, listen, we don't want to surrender to, to, the, uh, to the Filipinos. We're afraid that they're going to execute us. And so the two sides, the Americans and the Spanish, brokered a deal. The Americans would launch an attack at a prescribed time. They would not inf inform the Filipinos. The Spanish would fire some shots and then surrender, and the Americans would take possession of the Spanish and eventually ship them back to Spain. And the Spanish would then keep their heads held high, saying that they resisted, but they couldn't defeat them. Well, at the appointed time, the Americans did that just that. They launched the attack on the 3rd of August, 1898. Unfortunately, some of the Spanish troops didn't get word, and so some Americans got shot up, 50 of them, in fact. It was one of those sad situations where Americans were attacking blockhouses with pistols, with 38 caliber pistols, because they thought the Spanish were just gonna fire over their heads and let them in, and they didn't do it. But in the end, the Americans occupied, the, seized control of Manila, and grabbed and gathered up the Spanish troops. Meanwhile, the Filipinos surrounded the Americans. So you got Spanish held by the Americans and the Filipinos surrounding the Americans. And the situation became really, really tense. Ultimately, matters broke out. The American commander who did a great job, Wesley Merritt, he was a Civil War veteran, gave up his job and he was rotated back home and Elwell Otis took charge. You might recall Otis, he was the first commander of the, of the infantry and cavalry school and was instrumental in developing it. Then in January of 1899, something happened. It was a really tense atmosphere and a Filipino patrol was moving on the 4th of, uh, was, was, uh, moving around and some Nebraska troops began firing on them. As Captain W.G. Hahn recorded in his diary, quote, it has come. Last night about 9.30, firing began and it lasted all day and the natives got it in the neck good and hard. They ran like jackrabbits. So the situation was really tense. Once someone started firing, everyone started firing along the line and eventually the Filipinos were routed. 
The Filipinos were at a tremendous disadvantage. They had, were poorly armed. They didn't have good discipline. They weren't well-trained marksmen. And after a few battles with the Americans, they scattered into the mountains, and it, this turned into a really nasty guerrilla war. The Americans eventually replaced Otis with MacArthur, and MacArthur conducted a truly skillful guerrilla campaign, about as good as anyone could do under the circumstances. If you study the American war in Vietnam, you'll see very many similarities to things that MacArthur attempted. That is, creating free fire zones, relocating communities, um, the massive destruction of private property. Unfortunately, there were also torture, there were concentration camps, large American parties going through the jungles, tracking down insurgents. It was a pretty nasty fight with lots of losses and lots of destruction. One of the key events occurred when a guy named Fred, Fred Funston, there's Fred, captured Aguinaldo. And it was a strange situation. Funston had volunteered to fight on behalf, with, alongside the Cuban insurrectionists in the early 1790s, uh, 1890s, I'm sorry, and he got shot. Steel bullet went right through his chest, came out his back, and he was able to recover. And he really liked being in the military, so he, he, re, re, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and ended up fighting there. He came up with an ingenious plan to capture Aguinaldo. There were Filipino scouts who were working for the Americans, and they seized, they took Funston into Aguinaldo's camp, pretending that Funston was a prisoner of war. And at the appropriate time, they then rose up, seized control of Aguinaldo and his camp, and brought him back. So in March of 1901, Aguinaldo was captured. Fighting continued on that island of Luzon until July of 1902, when the war, the war ended because Teddy Roosevelt simply announced the war was over. Teddy Roosevelt, of course, riding on the fame of his success in the Spanish-American War, became McKinley's vice presidential candidate. When McKinley was assassinated, Teddy Roosevelt became president of the United States. The war was actually pretty extraordinary and pretty brutal. Almost 75,000 Americans fought in the Philippines. We tend to focus on Cuba, but the war in the Philippines was much bigger, much more long-lasting. U.S. lost 4,300 killed and 2,800 wounded in the fighting in the Philippines. And the war cost $600 million, which was a pretty staggering sum at the time. We don't know exactly how many casualties the Filipinos suffered, but they, we do know that they were really astounding. Estimates that I've seen are 16 to 20,000 killed and another 200,000 civilian deaths. But again, we just don't have any idea how accurate that information is. And of course, that, that doesn't reflect the harsh uh, implications of the war on the Philippine economy. So you have widespread starvation, hunger, so on and so forth. Of course, at back at home, there's tremendous opposition to the war. War is closely related to imperialism. P 
people began hearing about the atrocities and that really bothered them. An organization developed, the Anti-Imperialist League, which organized to resist American imperialism. And they began publishing anti-war materials. They published this letter, allegedly from an American soldier, A.A. A. Barnes, 3rd U.S. Artillery in late 1898-9, quote, the town was surrendered to us a few days ago and two companies occupy the same. Last night, one of our boys was found shot and his stomach cut open. Immediately, orders were received from the general to burn the town and kill every native in sight, which was done to a finish. About 1,000 men, women, and children were reported killed. I am growing hard-hearted, for I am in my glory when I can sight my gun on some dark skin and hold it trigger. End quote. Actually, the letter is fictitious. There is no A.A. A. Barnes in the United States Army. Uh, the governor of Illinois, who was also an anti-imperialist, read a letter that he claimed uh, a command shot into a wedding party, killing the bride and wounding the groom. As I said, the, the military investigated these and both claims were false. But it did create a really bad uh, perception in the minds of many people. Interestingly, we also have an issue in, in the southernmost large island of the Philippines. Now, you must realize the Philippines consist of, I, I can't remember, 4,000 islands. And one of the major islands in the south was Mindanao. Mindanao is occupied by the Moros. If you are an inveterate newspaper reader like I am, you will see every year a story or two about the Moros. The Moros are fighting the Philippine government today. The Moros fought the Spanish. The Moros fought the Americans. The Moros fought the Japanese in World War II. The Moros just love to fight. And when we captured the Spanish, the Spanish warned us of one thing. No matter what you do, do not mess with the Moros. And you guessed it, we messed with the Moros. And we got involved in some really tough fighting. You see this picture here? This is a po from a poster. And the, the, the poster was promoting the handgun that that American officer carried. It was a 45 caliber handgun. The United States standard sidearm for officers was a 38, but the 38 wouldn't stop a Moro, wouldn't bring him down. So they had to shift to a 45, and the nickname for the 45 caliber handgun was called the Moro Stop. And the fighting was just really, really tough. The Moros were extraordinarily good at it. And what's interesting is it became a kind of who's who of the early American army about who got involved in fighting against the Moros. To give you an idea, three chiefs of staff during World War I fought the Moros. Leonard Wood fought the Moros, I talked about him. The sole member of the United States Air Force, and it, this should be an inducement for you to sign up for the second half of this course, a guy named Benny Falloy fought the Moros. George C. Marshall, who was chief of staff during World War II, fought the Moros. They even set up a club within the old army for people who had fought the Moros because the Moros were so tough to fight. But the one who was better at fighting the Moros than anyone else was a guy named John J. Pershing. Pershing would lead regimental size expeditions against the Moros. 
and he was really good at it. Ultimately, Pershing got promoted from captain to brigadier general based on two factors. One, he was so good fighting the Moros, he's gained a great reputation in the army. Secondly, his father-in-law was on the Senate Military Affairs Committee, which really helps when you have that kind of political clout. So he went from literally captain to brigadier general in the army. The war ended, the United States continued to fight the Moros. There were amazing stories about fighting the Moros the American, the, in American military history. Pretty extraordinary stuff, pretty extraordinary stuff. There's a famous story where American officer is leaving and the Moro chief came out to say, bid him farewell. He's getting rotated back to the United States and the Moros really respected Americans who fought well. And as the ship was leaving the dock, the Moro chief was calling out, in translation, send back Pershing, send back Pershing. They love fighting Pershing because Pershing was so tough. It was a great challenge for it. In the end, the war was resolved with the Treaty of Paris. There were big issues whether the United States should take over, over colonies. McKinley struggled over the decision of the Philippines. He didn't have a problem with getting Cuba its independence. He didn't have a problem with Puerto Rico or Guam, but his big problem was the Philippines. In the end, the United States decided that it would keep the Philippines. It would keep Puerto Rico. It would keep Guam. The U.S. compensated Spain $20 million for the Philippines. The treaty was signed December 1898 called the Treaty of Paris. The treaty was then ratified by a vote of 57 to 27, so these areas became part of the United States. The United States became, now became an overseas imperialist power. So, anyone have any questions about these issues? Anyone, anyone? Okay, so no one has anything to say? All right, listen, it's been great fun as usual, and I will see, he, see you here on Thursday. Thank you so much for all your participation. You folks were great. Take care. Thanks for listening. This Lectures in History podcast is part of a series on American History TV, which airs each weekend on C-SPAN 3. Check your local listings for more information.